0: Good afternoon. It is a joy and a blessing to be here today. Uh, it's very encouraging to see everyone out, both our members and many visitors with us. Uh, it's a wonderful blessing to be able to, to join together in praise to our Lord. Now, to open up His Word and study from it together. As we uh, assemble each week, as we uh, study, as we preach, we want to make sure that our focus is on the Word of God. We don't want Anything that we say here to be the product of our own ideas, our own experiences, our own traditions, we want to make sure that we're letting God speak for himself. So I invite you to open up your Bibles today as we study uh, to let it be our focus uh, because it has the power. It's where the wisdom of God is found. And today as we study, I want us to consider the topic of Baptism. Baptism has long been uh, a very controversial subject uh, in the religious world. Uh, people throughout history of the church have uh, differed over the mode of baptism, the individuals that are our subjects of baptism, the necessity of baptism. But I, I feel maybe what the, the core of the questions about baptism revolve around is the purpose of baptism. Why Be baptized, and when we look at the scriptures, there seems to be little reason for all the confusion. The the scriptures talk quite extensively about the topic of baptism, Uh, and much of the time it speaks fairly straightforward about the topic. But I I think maybe what part of the controversy and confusion comes from, or at least one area of contention, revolves around the idea of the symbolism involved in baptism. You've probably heard the phrase used before, baptism is an outward sign of an inward grace. And on the surface, what those words mean is that baptism is a a physical sign or symbol, uh, but it is pointing to, to something deeper, something spiritual. That is occurring, and and on the surface, if that's all that we mean by it, then then I would say yes. Uh, It is a symbol, and we're going to see there is much symbolism involved in baptism, and there is something deeper, something spiritual uh, by God's grace going on. But I, I think we shy away from that language because when maybe our Baptist friends say baptism is an outward sign of an inward grace, they're implying that it is just a sign. And that maybe it's not pointing towards something that is going on by God's grace in the act, but something that has already taken place. And if that's what we mean, uh, then we do need to be careful about using that phrase. Uh, it might be claimed by some that salvation is only indirectly associated with baptism and cannot be contingent or conditional upon it. Uh, if if we were wanting to illustrate this viewpoint, we we might use the illustration of a marriage ceremony. In marriage, there there are a lot of different symbolic acts that go on in that ceremony. Uh, You might have exchanging of rings. You might have the the lighting of a unity candle. You might have the, the father of the bride giving away the bride to the groom. But those are all highly symbolic, but they within themselves don't constitute the, the marriage. Uh, they just point towards what is going on. Uh, in our country, the signing of the marriage license and the giving of the, the marriage vows or making of vows is what really constitutes that marriage. And I think some people view baptism that way, that it, it's part of the ceremony involved, but that, that's really just indirectly related with the salvation that is occurring. Is that the case? Well, what I want us to see today is that something can be highly symbolic and still be essential and still be a part of the salvation that is occurring. Just because something is a symbol does not necessarily mean it is artificial or non-essential. Think for just a moment before we get into some of the symbolism of baptism in the New Testament about some Old Testament symbols that were essential to deliverance think about the passover for instance remember when israel was told that they needed to take the blood of the passover lamb and that they needed to to smear it upon the the uh doorpost and the, the lentil of the house that was a highly symbolic act was it not and yet was it essential for their deliverance if they had refused to follow through with god what god told them to do Then the angel of death would have brought the death of the firstborn upon their household. Just because it was a symbol didn't mean it was non-essential. Think about many other cases in the wilderness as they're wandering and God sends the the plague of the fiery serpents. You have uh, Moses told to, to put up the bronze serpent and anybody who looks on this bronze serpent would then be delivered. That's a very highly symbolic thing and yet was it essential? for them to receive that deliverance from God? Well, yes, they, they had to look upon the serpent to be delivered from this plague. You think about Rahab and the scarlet cord that was held out of uh, or put on her window in the destruction of Jerusalem or Naaman washing in the Jordan River. All very highly symbolic things and yet they were an essential part of receiving the deliverance that God gave. And so the question that we want to address today is as we look at the symbolism of baptism, is this just symbolism of something that maybe has already occurred or something that is indirectly uh, and unrelated re- occurring? Or is it also reality? Is it symbolizing something that is, by God's grace, taking place within the act itself? Let's look at uh, six different figures that the New Testament uses in describing excuse me, describing baptism to us. First of all, we see baptism as a washing. In Acts chapter 22 in verse 16, you remember as Paul uh, is recounting his conversion as Saul of Tarsus at that time. Uh, remember he in Acts 22:16 16, talks about Ananias coming to him and he recounts Ananias' words saying, now why do you delay Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Here, baptism is described as a washing, a cleansing or purifying that is taking place, in this case, not just of the flesh, but of our souls, of our spirits. And the idea of, of washing in water is something that, that the Jews would have been very familiar with in the Old Law, the Old Covenant. Uh, washing or, or cleansing with water was often employed, uh, first of all, in the consecration of the priests. And even among other ceremonial acts of the Jews, they were to wash with water. And so this concept is kind of carried forward into the New Covenant to describe the, the consecration and purification of of every Christian. And yet we see this is not just something that applies to to Saul on the road, or or, or Saul rather in Damascus here, but it applies to every Christian. If you look in Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5 is Paul is using this illustration of of Christ in his church as a groom with his bride. Notice how it describes Christ's actions towards his bride, the church. It says in chapter 5, starting in verse 25, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Now what is he talking about here? When when was his bride washed with water uh, with the word? Well, I think clearly we have a reference here to baptism. And this is something that applies to everyone who is part of the Bride of Christ. And yet it's not just that the the water itself had some special power within itself. Here this is, first of all, uh, an action that it says Christ is performing upon us. He is washing us. And also it says washing of water with the Word. It ultimately is the power of God's Word and His promise of salvation working through that water that sanctifies us. And yet, here we see in our baptism, Christ is washing us through his promise and his power. We see again this idea in Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. Titus 3 and verse 5, Paul writes, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Here, he says it's not based on deeds of righteousness that we have done. And I think sometimes people see baptism as exactly that, that it's some deed of righteousness by which we're trying to earn our salvation, that God's going to look down at our baptism and just be so impressed by what we've done that he's going to say, you know what, you deserve salvation. That's not what we're saying at all. That's not what the scripture is saying at all. Here, baptism, this washing, is not some deed of righteousness by which we procure our own salvation, but it is a response to the grace and the mercy of God and by His mercy through this act of washing. uh, We experience this washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit and submitting to His grace and His mercy. We see that His grace and His Spirit... Washes us, renews us, regenerates us uh, within our souls. And as we've already said, it's it's not uh, this uh, water that has the power. It's not that this is somehow some holy water or some consecrated water within itself. It's just regular water. It's ultimately God's grace working through that. And the blood of Jesus that is washing us. In Revelation chapter 7 and verse 14... As it talks about that the saints there symbolically, it says they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Where, where is the power residing here? Although we are submitting in this act of baptism, ultimately it is the blood of Jesus. And its power that is washing us within that act. Uh, administered, his blood administered to our souls. Uh, by God within the act of baptism. Well, let's ask the question here, when does this washing take place? If you look back in Acts 22 and verse 16, what did Ananias say? Did he say, Paul, why do you wait? Arise and be baptized because your sins have been washed away. No, he says, arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Here it was within that act that God, by his grace, by the blood of Jesus and his power, was washing. And so we see, yes, it is highly symbolic, but in this case, it seems to be that that washing was taking place in the very act. But notice also there in Acts 22 and verse 16, Ananias says, uh, "Rise, wash away your sins, calling on his name. What does that mean? Well, baptism is also an appeal to God, an appeal to His name, His power and authority, His grace, as we already said, ultimately, to cleanse us. We see the same idea back in Acts chapter 2, the the first gospel sermon that's preached on the day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, you notice as, as Peter begins preaching here, he quotes from the prophet Joel. And at the end of this quotation... He quotes Joel saying, and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And throughout the rest of Peter's sermon, he describes what this means. First of all, he tells who this Lord is. Whose name? Well, he describes Jesus as Lord. Uh, that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. They need to know whose name it is they're calling on. Ultimately, that name is Jesus, their Savior. But how exactly were they to call on his name? What does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? In a very general sense, this phrase, call on the name of the Lord, was used throughout the scripture to describe a variety of acts of prayer or worship to God. Genesis chapter 4 and verse 26 is the first time we read of it. Uh, where it says, at that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. They began to seek God through prayer, to seek God in worship. And so, in a sense, in prayer, we call upon God's name to uh, guide us, protect us, and heal us. In the old dispensation, they uh, sought God uh, and called upon His name in sacrifices, calling upon Him to forgive and to atone, in praise and in worship. We call upon God's name to to dwell among his people and be pleased with our service. But under the new covenant specifically, how does Peter say we are to call on the name of the Lord? We notice he uses the idea of uh, Jesus' name, the name of the Lord again in Acts chapter 2 verse 38. What does he say there? Verse 38, he tells them, repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, the name of the Lord, for the forgiveness of your sins. How are we going to draw near to God here? How are we going to call on his name, appeal to his power and his authority? Well, here Peter says to be baptized in his name, by his authority and his power. We are baptized uh, according to his direction in order to receive his forgiveness, commit our lives to his service, and that's exactly what we see in Acts twenty-two sixteen. He was to arise and be baptized, calling upon his name, appealing to God in the way that He has designated under the new covenant. Turn your Bibles with me to First Peter chapter three. First Peter chapter three. We uh, covered this recently in our Sunday morning class, and he uses an illustration here. That we're going to get to later in talking about Noah and the flood in verse 20. But he says in verse 21, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here he describes baptism as an appeal to God. We're not appealing to the water, not appealing to its power, we're appealing to God's power, his forgiveness and his grace in the act of baptism, that he might cleanse us. So baptism is not simply some ritual purification. At its core, it is an appeal to God's grace for cleansing. And here we see very clearly the outward act is essential he says in verse 21, corresponding that, baptism now saves you. Now, you can't get much clearer than that. If, if, if God wanted to tell us that baptism was essential to salvation, what, what more could he say to tell us that it was necessary? Baptism now saves you. It is certainly uh, by God's design part of receiving the cleansing of his grace. And let let me ask, why would we appeal to God for something that we already possessed? If baptism is truly an appeal to God for a good conscience, then if I've already been cleansed, if I've already been washed, if I've already been saved, then why now would I be uh, appealing for something that he's already given? I think very clearly here we see that Uh, Peter doesn't say, baptism shows that you have been saved. He says, baptism now saves you. But not only is baptism the appeal, but also within baptism we see God's deliverance. Notice the illustration that Peter is using here, starting in verse 20. He talks about those who were disobedient in the days of Noah when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. He then says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. So here he uses the illustration, the imagery or symbolism of the flood. Now, what what exactly is he talking about here? Well, within the flood, God, through water, brought really a, a cleansing of judgment to the world, right? And that that water that wiped out all the wickedness of the world, of flesh, brought salvation to Noah and his household, lifting them up above the destruction of the world uh, and the wickedness around them. And so in the same way, uh, we call upon God for deliverance from the the wickedness of our own souls, the wickedness of, of the world which we are a part of. And so, it's not just an appeal, but it is God's act of deliverance to us. We see a very similar figure in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, if you'd like to turn over there. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1 and 2, here we see the illustration of the Israelites being released from bondage in Egypt. In verse 1 and 2 we read, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Here he describes this as the the baptism of Moses. I think we should see a a parallel there between the baptism of Moses and the baptism of Christ. Now what? What does he mean by the baptism of Moses here? Well, as God was leading them out of bondage from Egypt after the ten plagues, they come up to the Red Sea. What does God do? God parts the waters of that Red Sea. It guides them down into the Red Sea. And as the, the cloud is above them and the sea is all around them, they are symbolically baptized, immersed into the, the Red Sea, uh, in which, by God's power, they, they are delivered out of Egypt, out of bondage. Uh, into the wilderness and ultimately into the promised land. And so I think we uh, see a parallel here that we aren't being released from bondage to Egypt, but we're being released from bondage to sin. And God, through the baptism of Christ, is leading us through the the Red Sea uh, to release us from that bondage into freedom on our way to the promised land. Now, Did the Red Sea within itself save the Israelites? No, it was God's power working in that Red Sea. It was God's power that that parted those waters, that empowered that Red Sea to deliver them from their captors and to swallow up uh, Pharaoh and and his army behind them. In the same way, it's not the, the waters of baptism within themselves that save us, but God empowering those waters to be our pathway to salvation. And yet, we still have to go through that Red Sea. Uh, Imagine if God parted the Red Sea and Israel said, well, that's great, we appreciate you delivering us, but we're going to stand right here on the other side. Would they have been delivered? Well, no, they still had to go through the pathway that God had provided for them. In the same way, it's God's power, God's grace, God's working. And yet, we still have to appeal to him in the way that he has designed, follow his pathway to salvation And so just as they had the baptism of Moses, just as the flood was their deliverance, lifting them up from the destruction of the wicked world around them, baptism now saves us. But a fourth illustration that we see in the scriptures is the illustration of baptism being a a circumcision of the heart. Turn your Bibles over to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, we're going to read verse 11 and 12. Here, speaking about Christ, it says, And in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, and the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And so here he describes baptism uh, in verse 13. Or verse 12, rather, as, as a, a burial, but I think he also makes the connection with verse 11, it being a, a circumcision, a removal of the body of flesh. Well, now, what exactly is he talking about here? Uh, he's not talking about a, a physical circumcision. We see it throughout even the Old Testament, especially in the New, this idea of circumcision of the heart. Uh, in Romans chapter 2, verse 28 and 29, talks about this spiritual circumcision. And... It corresponds with with the the physical covenant under the old law. Uh, Under the old law, God designed circumcision as a sign of the covenant, right? Uh, And uh, a male child on the eighth day was to have his foreskin removed to to symbolize the the promises involved uh, in their descendants, uh, their seed that God had given them. And so somebody might look at this and say, well, see, here baptism is just a sign of the covenant, right? And circumcision didn't put you into the covenant. It was just a mark of the covenant. You were born a Jew. You were born into the covenant. And eight days later, you received the sign. Well, is that what it's talking about? Is baptism just a sign of the covenant? Look back at this passage in Colossians 2. Is that the point that Paul is making here? Does he say anything about sign? Does he say anything about covenant? What is the point that he's making using this illustration of circumcision? In verse 11 it says, And in him you are also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. What aspect of circumcision is he focusing on? The removal of the flesh, this this surgical procedure here, spiritually speaking, cutting away the sins of our flesh, the body of our flesh, the old man, is that essential to salvation or peripheral to salvation? Well, no, certainly we must have the sins of our flesh cut away. And so here, the point that he's making in this illustration is not what some would want to make the point. That it's it's, it's somehow a sign of the covenant. No, the point that he's making is that the the body of our flesh is removed away. And even if we are going to make that point, even if we're going to say, well, circumcision didn't put you into the covenant. It was just a sign of the covenant. What did put you into the covenant? Birth. What else does the Bible talk about as a symbolism of baptism? Being born again. And so, if, if, if we want to make that argument, we need to go to, to the other illustrations the Bible uses as well. Being born again. And so we also see baptism described as a new birth. John chapter 3 and verse 5. John chapter 3 and verse 5, Jesus here says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water in the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. What does it mean to be born of water and the Spirit." I think just as we see uh, Jesus being baptized in the Holy Spirit ascending upon him as, uh, uh, in the form of a dove, I think that foreshadows what uh, is New Covenant baptism as well. Now we are baptized in the water and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2 verse 38 Um, They are to repent and be baptized for the remission of their sins. And what will they receive? The gift of the Holy Spirit. Water and the Spirit. Titus 3 and verse 5 that we already quoted talks about the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Here in our baptism, both the the water and the Spirit are active uh, in bringing about our cleansing, our salvation. And Jesus says, without this new birth, we cannot enter the kingdom of God. Does that sound essential or non-essential? Without being born again of water and the Spirit, I cannot take part in the kingdom of God. I cannot be a citizen in His nation. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We, if we want to be saved, have to put our old life behind. We have to start anew. We have to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit, renewed by the Holy Spirit. Where does that new birth take place? Jesus here describes it as a being born again by water and the Spirit. And so if we want to be a child of God, if we want to start a new life in Christ, we need to do it in the way that Jesus is designated. And that goes along with the the last illustration that we see of baptism that that we read in our scripture reading of a burial and a resurrection. Turn with me to Romans 6 once again. Romans 6, starting in verse 3. Here we read, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. We read about the idea of burial in Colossians 2, being buried in baptism. Well, here we see that fleshed out much more thoroughly. That when we are baptized, we are baptized into Christ Jesus. It is in Christ that we become a new creation, we read in 2 Corinthians 5. We're baptized into his death. We come in contact with the cleansing blood of Jesus, and we are raised up to walk in newness of life. This is highly symbolic. There's no question about that. But it is not just figurative or artificial. When is it that we are buried with Christ? When is it that we are raised to walk in newness of life? When is it that we uh, are put into Christ, become a new creation? Well, Paul's answer is in baptism. By God's grace, by his power, by the power of the resurrection, we in submitting to God's grace and responding to the gospel receive this new life in the waters of baptism. We both symbolically and literally leave our old life behind and start a new one. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer that I live, but Christ who lives in me. That's what we are doing in baptism. We are crucifying self. We are taking up our cross. And by God's grace, we are starting a new life, no longer to live for self. Grady Huggins is is dead and gone. He was buried. He and all his sin and all his condemnation are dead and gone. And by God's grace is now Christ who lives in me. Colossians 3, verse 3 and 4 says, You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Maybe many of us here today have been baptized, have buried the old man of sin, and by God's grace raised to walk in newness of life. But can we truly say this? Can we truly say that it's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us? That's what we committed to. That's what occurred in our baptism. That self is gone. Only Christ now lives. Is baptism an outward sign of an inward grace? Well, in in a way, yes, it is a symbol, very symbolic. It's a sign of something that by God's grace is happening within the waters of baptism. According to the scriptures, it is the way that we contact the grace and receive the forgiveness of our sins. It is where our sins are washed away. It is where we appeal to God for a clean conscience and receive the deliverance from our sins. It is where the sins of our flesh are cut away. The old man is buried with Christ, and our new life as a child of God begins. Is that essential or non-essential to salvation? Sounds quite essential to me. Baptism now saves us, Peter says. Without it, we cannot enter the kingdom of God, Jesus says. Without it, we cannot be his child or be in a right relationship with him. Do you need to be baptized today? Have you appealed to God for a good conscience? Have you called upon the name of the Lord that your sins might be washed away? Have you repented by burying your old man of sin and allowing God to raise you a new creature? to live no longer for yourself but for Christ if you hadn't. We want to help you with that today. You know, we each have to appeal to God for his grace. We can't do it on our own, and nobody else can do it for us. Uh, my, my parents can't appeal to God on my behalf. Uh, my, my pastor, my priest, can't just appeal to God on my behalf. I have to appeal to God. I have to call upon his name so that I might be cleansed. And it's not some act of righteousness that God looks down upon and is just so impressed that that he is, is then going to cleanse us. That's not it at all. It is us reaching out to him in the way that he commanded that we might receive his grace and his cleansing, his salvation. We don't set aside days, special days for baptisms. Uh, What we see within the scriptures is that whenever someone was convicted that they needed to respond to the gospel, they did it that very hour of the night, or in this case, that very hour of the day. If there is anyone who needs to commit their life to the Lord for the first time, we want to help you in that. And if you have made that commitment, but you're not living up to it, and you need to make things right, you need to, in some public way, uh, confess your sins, ask for the prayers of these brethren, The reason that we're here is to help one another, to help one another that we might have the the type of relationship with the Lord that he has offered to us. We might have a hope of eternity with him. If there's anything that we can do to help you in your relationship with the Lord today, we ask that you let us know at this time as we sing.